Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. There are so many ways to work for peace, and today we're going to look at it from a direction I don't think I've yet explored on this Spirit in Action program, from the point of view of psychology. Our guest is Fatali Mogadam, a professor in the Department of Psychology at Georgetown University. Plus, and this is what led me to him, Fatali is the editor of Peace and Conflict, Journal of Peace Psychology. We need all the tools possible at our disposal in order to effectively work for peace. So I'm very happy to find a new arrow in my quiver as we go to the phone now to speak with Fatali Mogadam in Washington, D.C. Ali, thanks so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm honored. Well, I'm really honored. Not only are you editor of the Journal of Peace Psychology, but you seem to do extensive study on your own that I think has got to make the whole journal much more rich. How did you end up becoming editor of Journal of Peace Psychology? Well, I am very interested in trying to help achieve peace and avoid war. And as a psychologist, I'm very interested in the Journal of Peace Psychology because it is the premier journal that deals with psychology and peace. So it just seemed natural for me to become involved in a deeper way. I read that you at one point had perhaps considered going towards economics, but you chose psychology over that. Why was that? Well, because economics, particularly when I was a student uh, 30 years ago, was assuming that human beings are rational and it's only recently that economists have started to work more with ideas of human irrationality and I think anyone who takes a close look at human history, how human beings behave in the contemporary world quickly comes to the conclusion that human beings are irrational rather than rational. So it seems to me that psychology is much more concerned with the real world and how human beings are actually behaving. When you say rational, most people would say, well, I'm rational or what I do makes sense. But there's a difference, I think, between makes sense and being rational, or at least I imagine there is in the way you're talking about it. Yes. By the claim that human beings are irrational, I mean that Most of the time, human beings, particularly collectively, 
act in a way that, uh, first of all, works against their own interests and their own collective interests. And secondly, most of the time, they are not aware of why they are acting in a particular way. But, of course, this doesn't mean that they can't rationalize. Humans are brilliant at rationalizing, that is, behaving in a particular way that is actually irrational, and then after the fact, explaining their own behavior in a rational way. So so rationalization is something we're brilliant at. And this comes out most clearly in war. Again and again, we go to war, and we always rationalize it by saying we've gone to war in order to have peace or we've gone to war in order to have democracy or freedom or any of these things. But of course, we never say we went to war because we wanted to kill people or destroy the opposition or anything like that. Yes, everybody's fighting for the good from their own point of view, at least as they explain it to one another, right? Absolutely. And of course, everybody has God on their side. I've never come across an army that doesn't have God on their side. God seems to be on all sides when it comes to wars. And does that include the Soviet Union? Did they have God on their side? Well, they had marks on their side, which was their God. But of course, that was just another way of rationalizing. Well, I want to get into the ideas that you've particularly studied. But first, I want to talk a bit more about Peace and Conflict, the Journal of Peace Psychology. How far back does it go? When did it originate? I understand this is one of something like 50 journals that are produced by the American Psychological Association. Yes, it's in its third decade now, and it's a journal that has attracted a lot of attention from peace psychologists. But the challenge has always been to make the journal more mainstream, to spread the word among all psychologists, and that's what we're trying to do now. It's about two years since the journal became an APA journal, that is uh, a journal of the American Psychological Association, and that's about the time when I came on board as editor and I've been collaborating with the APA to really try to make the journal much more mainstream and to get all psychologists to think about peace. Of course, related to that are issues of governance. One of my firm beliefs is that democracy is associated with peace and that democracies do not go to war against one another. And if we could make countries more democratic, we'd have a more peaceful world. How big of an organization is the Journal of Peace Psychology? How many staff? I imagine there's at least a handful of other people who help you do this work. Otherwise, you're overworked. I'm sure of that. Well, I am overworked, but that's usually a good thing for most people. I have four associate editors who collaborate with me, and then I have an editorial board of about 25 people. And then we have hundreds of people who help with the reviewing. So there are huge numbers of people who are helping with the blind reviews. And then on the APA side, we have a number of APA staff who help run the journal as well. The name of it is Peace and Conflict Journal of Peace Psychology. You could have had as the subtitle there, Peace and Conflict, the Journal of War Psychology. 
because uh, maybe those two are supplementary, complementary opposites, or is it that not the right way to think about it? Well, we could have had the Journal of War Psychology, but of course, our focus is on trying to establish peace as normative and trying to maintain peace. And to achieve that, we really want to avoid war, obviously. And so the emphasis has always been on peace building and the resolution of different types of conflicts or at least the transformation of conflicts. So I was able to look at two different issues. They're from 2012. My wife, who's a psychotherapist, brought them home from work and said, Mark, you should check this out. And I took a look at them and got an idea of some of the kinds of things that one would write about in a journal of peace psychology. What are the criteria that you use for selecting what goes in or how you build a particular issue of the journal of peace psychology? Well, I can give you some examples of special issues we've had. That's one way to uh, approach the question. For example, recently we've had special issues or are planning special issues in the near future on children and war, memory and conflict. We've had collective harm doing. We have had the management of diversity, how to manage intergroup relationships in uh, societies with diverse populations in a way that avoids conflict and supports peace. So in general, we're very interested in all submissions that indirectly or directly relate to peace and conflict, defined very, very broadly. Just about all activities that relate to group relationships will come under this. And we publish material, we publish material under three different headings, really. One is the major papers that are usually empirical studies of relationships between groups, perceptions between groups, biases, prejudices, feelings of threat, collective identity threats, these kind of things. A second group of papers are brief research reports. And these are usually reports that don't warrant uh, very lengthy discussions, but they're interesting snippets of results. And then we have book reviews and book review essays. For example, an author may take three or four books and discuss a major theme that connects those books. And we're very, very interested in having more book review essays. So those are the basic categories. But what brings them all together is the concern to strengthen peace, to try to avoid war. But of course, in some instances, we have to also deal with what happens when war takes place. For example, we have several special issues coming out on the whole topic of children and war, how children suffer, how they're impacted when war takes place, and psychologically, what are the consequences of war for children. So that's the kind of theme we are concerned with. Who is this useful for? Who is it prepared for? Is it only a psychologist, a therapist? Are there non-professional people who should be interested or would grow from reading these uh, reading issues of peace and conflict? 
Well, the first audience is really people interested in peace, interested to maintain peace, interested to develop peace. It's not just psychologists. It's people, lay people who are interested in peace building. Secondly, it's professionals who are practitioners in different arenas, managers, lawyers, all kinds of people who are practicing in ways that relates to peace. And then, of course, there's the more specialized readership that consists of psychologists, conflict resolution experts, etc. But we do make an effort to develop the journal in such a way that it would be of interest to anyone who is really interested in peace building and the psychology of peace building. You know, you say that the primary group maybe who will be interested in this are people who are interested in peace building. And there's part of me, and I don't know if this is a rationalization within my brain about this. It's like, how can anyone not be interested in peace building? How can that not be 100%? But there must be something about the way that we rationalize to ourselves that makes some people dismiss this. Do you actually experience this when you're saying, hey, take a look at this, and people say, no, that's useless? Well, the problem in this area is that peace building, as soon as you say peace building, some members of the general population think that you must be dealing with a bunch of hippies, you know, people running around with their hair growing out wild and smoking joints and talking about peace. Of course, what we are dealing with is pragmatic, down-to-earth people who realize that Peace is what we need in order to survive as human beings. In the long term, our survival really does depend on us achieving much, much more emphasis on peace building and avoiding war. Just think about it. In countries such as Pakistan now, there are enough nuclear weapons that if you blew them up within the borders of that particular country, it would not affect just Pakistan, it would affect the rest of us in the rest of the world, and we would end up more or less destroying ourselves. So this is not some kind of hippie idealism. This is pragmatic, this is down-to-earth, this is our survival. And are you able to convey that to people? Is that an idea that... I I still imagine there's other stumbling blocks that prevent people from being interested in peace psychology. Yes, there are other stumbling blocks, one of them being that it seems idealistic. You know, many people see their everyday lives as to do with practical problems, and they think peace psychology is something airy-fairy and idealistic. And really... That's the challenge, to make people see that this is just as concrete as anything else. Can you give me an example of a concrete piece of study advocacy that's part of what comes out in Peace and Conflict? And just give me an idea of how what you write about there actually can pragmatically be used to bring peace in this world. Well, uh, let me give you an example from a recent special issue, a set of papers we had on managing diversity, 
of course, in the United States, in most of Europe now, in, in most of the world, we have diversity of different forms, ethnic diversity, religious diversity, language diversity, etc. And one of the big challenges is how can people collaborate with each other more constructively? For example, in the United States right now, we have the Black Lives Matter movement. We have all these movements to do with minority rights. And in that issue, focusing on diversity, we had discussions about different policies and we had discussions of research about different types of policies, not just the traditional policies of multiculturalism and the like, but we had the newer alternative policies like omniculturalism. Now, we talked about omniculturalism as one type of policy that can be used to improve human relationships. To give you another example, recently we had a special issue on human rights. Why did we have a special issue on human rights? Because Rights and democracy are central to peacekeeping. I've recently completed a book that's going to come out next month on the psychology of democracy. And the assumption of this book is that if we can manage to improve and spread democracies through psychology, we can also build peace because democracies are foundational for peace. So there are ways in which the discussions in the journal and the discussions around democracy and peace really benefit societies generally. I'm wondering if you could give me an example of peace efforts that might be counterintuitive. That is, that we might believe, it might be just common sense from our point of view, that X helps foster peace, whereas, in fact, maybe something very different is what actually is going to foster peace. Do you, I, isn't that question clear? Yes, I understand what you're saying. For example, think of the area of human rights. We often think of human rights as being very important in relation to peace and democracy. We seldom think of duties. And one of the things that has evolved in recent decades is this notion that human rights are universal, that they are central to everything we do. Well, this is a wonderful idea, but at the same time, first of all, we have to understand that only a small number of human rights are actually universal when you get down to it the human rights that are universal, very small. Second, in order to have peace and democracy, you don't need just to focus on individual rights. You need to focus on duties. And the focus on duties has to be not only on individual duties, but collective duties. And uh, of course, this is not reflected in our general discussions. Very few people discuss human duties. We don't have a United Nations Declaration of Human Duties. We have human rights. 
So that's an example of how the research that we're doing leads us to have a slightly different emphasis so that we don't just go around talking about rights, rights, rights. We focus also on duties and not just on collective rights, but uh, I'm sorry, not just on individual rights, but also on collective rights and individual and collective duties as well. Some time ago, I imagine it was 20 or 30 years ago, I read a bit by Kenneth Boulding. Kenneth Boulding, he passed some time ago, but he was an economist. He's a Quaker economist, so that kind of naturally meant that he had a particular concern about peace. And the particular article or or piece that I read from him was talking about a conceptualizing of peace that very few people think about. And he talked about stable peace and unstable peace and stable conflict and unstable conflict. And that unstable peace could be very threatening to the well-being of people, whereas stable peace had its advantages. I don't know if this is something that's a psychologically based item. He saw that happening and he, he could document and he says, well, apparently this is peace, but it's not going to be good for people because it's going to crumble. It'll fall apart. Does that make any sense from your psychological point of view? Well, it does in the sense that in order to have people feel less anxious, people to feel confident about their future, you need to have peace based on stability. And people have to be able to look ahead and identify their future as stable. I think one of the biggest problems at the moment in the near and Middle East, if we look at North Africa going right across from North Africa to the near east of you know, Iraq, Syria, Iran, then going right across to the Middle East, Israel, the Arab states, all that region suffers from instability and unstable peace. People in that region can't be sure that even if they have a temporary peace today, they can't be sure that there's not going to be war tomorrow. It is a very unfortunate situation that has led uh, to tens of millions of refugees in that region. Now the refugees are spilling out getting to Europe and North America. And this is having a devastating effect, not just on that region, but the rest of the world. So the types of peace we have, whether people can see stability for themselves and their families next year, even next month, those are very important issues. Now, some people have argued that the situation has got a lot better because Looking at casualty statistics, they've argued that fewer people are dying, fewer people are being killed in wars, in violence, etc. And so they've argued that the situation is a lot better. However, I think this is rather simple-minded because what they're not taking into account is that the survival of larger numbers of people is because of improved medical care. For example, following the 2003 invasion of Iraq, 
by the U.S.-led forces, we had relatively few Americans being killed. For example, something like 5,000 Americans perhaps dying in that whole era. And this is far less than, for example, during Vietnam. But this isn't because we've got less violence. It's simply because our medical treatment has got a lot better so that we can save people. When they become injured, we can save them. Whereas 500 years ago, most people who got wounded would die from infections. Nowadays, we have very powerful medications, antibiotics. We have surgery. We can get to people very quickly. So this sense of uh, optimism that has arisen because of the belief that we're doing a lot better, we're a lot less violent, I think this is misplaced. What we have to look at is not just how many people survive, but how many people are actually engaged in warfare, the extent to which we get these huge refugee problems. So that's a better indicator to me. I want to remind our listeners that you're tuned in to Spirit in Action. This is Northern Spirit Radio production on the web at northernspiritradio.org. On that site, you'll find more than 10 years of our programs for free, listening, and download. You'll find links to our guests. So when you want to get a hold of Fatali Mogadam, you can follow the link from our site. Mogadam may not be a spelling that a lot of you are familiar with, but it is M-O-G-H. A-D-D-A-M. Fatali commonly goes by the name Ali. He is the editor of Peace and Conflict, the Journal of Peace Psychology. So you'll find those links on nordenspiritradio.org. Also on that site, you'll find a place to post comments. And we love two-way communication. Please add your voice when you visit. There's also a place to donate, and that is how this work is supported. It's full-time work, and your donations make it possible. But even more important than supporting our organization, please support local community radio stations. Community radio provides you with a slice of news and of music that you get nowhere else on the American airwaves. And so that is a primary place to start out to make these ideas reach a wider populace. Again, my guest, Vitaly Mogadam, he's Iranian-born and trained in England, went back to Iran between 1979 and 1984, from there over to Canada, McGill University, and since I think 1990, he's been down in the Washington area and working, therefore, with Georgetown University. And as I think you said, Fatali, it's been about two years. You've been editor of Peace and Conflict. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And my main work at the moment is really to develop this journal, make it more widely known, to get it more widely known, particularly internationally. We now have a much better representation from people around the world to this journal. And my own emphasis has always been global. And my current personal research is also on dictatorship and democracy because I see this as the challenge of the 21st century. Will we manage to improve and strengthen democracies around the world Or will it be the case that by the end of this century, dictatorships will have advanced 
And of course, with dictatorships, we typically get wars. And so the concern I have is, as the American empire comes to a situation where it matures and it's possible that it will start declining, perhaps in the middle of this century or towards the end of this century, as we get the maturing and decline of the American empire and as we get the rise of China, what will become of democracy? And so my new book, The Psychology of Democracy, is really taking up this challenge of how psychologically we can improve the chances of democracy winning out in the long term. Of course, democracy won't win out if we don't fight for it. This is a fight of the 21st century. To get democracy spread more strongly around the world and to support peace. This makes a lot of sense considering where you originate from. You grew up and your initial education was entirely in Iran and you left at a certain point to go to England for your studies. At the point when you were there, I believe the Shah must have been leading the country, controlling the country. I think that makes it a dictatorship that you grew up in. Is that correct? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And the great challenge that we have as human beings is to escape dictatorship. And of course, this is not easy at all. Again and again and again, revolutions have led to the collapse of one dictatorship only to have it replaced by another dictatorship, as happened with the Shah collapsing and the mullahs rising in Iran, as has happened repeatedly in history, the Tsar being killed off in 1917 in Russia, and then you get the dictatorship of Stalin and his successors, and now we have Putin. Mao overthrowing the dictatorship of the emperors in China, and now we have the dictatorship of Mao's successors in China. So this is a repetitive story in human history, and we have not yet got out of the cycle. And that is the real challenge. It's not just to think about peace building, uh, because peace building will not succeed if we have dictatorships succeeding. Peace building will only succeed if we manage to move to democracies. And unfortunately, we do not yet have any of what I call actualized democracies. Actualized democracies are democracies in which every citizen is a full participant in the decision-making process in society, irrespective of their wealth and connections. And we do not have an actualized democracy on Earth yet. The United States, European countries, these are all semi-democracies. They're not full democracies. And the challenge in the 21st century is to try to move these societies towards greater democracy and to, to do it in such a way that eventually we defeat the dictatorships. That's the fight for the 21st century. Given that you studied democracy in relationship to peace and the psychology of democracy, that your upcoming book, I assume that you're very aware of the Princeton study, which was, what, a year or two ago, where they determined that by looking at votes of our National Congress on specific issues, 
how they voted and how that correlated with what democracy would produce versus what an oligarchy would produce. Their determination was we're not a democracy in the United States. Now, if I'm oversimplifying, please correct me, but you know what that study talks about. Yes, I think most serious scholars and critics would argue that we only have sort of semi-democracies in place at the moment. We don't have full democracies. Decision-making is very much in the hands of select groups. Even in the most important elections in the United States, at the moment, only about half the population votes. The vast majority of people remain apathetic and distrustful. And some elites, perhaps not all, but at least some powerful elites are quite happy with this situation. They really don't want a full democracy. But I think it's a mistake because there is a real danger that in the 21st century, dictatorships will rise again and threaten the world order in a serious way and challenge even the limited openness we have. I look very seriously at the rise of China, for example, as a threat to freedom and basic human rights around the world. These are things we have to take very seriously. I didn't hear you mention that Russia was such a serious threat. Is that because they're not as large as China? Russia is definitely a very serious threat to uh, freedom and uh, liberty, particularly because it has proved so difficult to move Russia towards greater openness. The story of Russia in the last 40 years has been tragic because it's, it's been the classic story of uh, revolution, and the rise of a new post-dictatorship regime only to slip back into dictatorship again. And of course, we have Putin right now. Russia is a great danger, but of course, it's not as great a danger as China because the Chinese economy is much stronger and the long-term potential of the rise of China as a global power is much greater. You talked about Iraq previously, and I was wondering, my perspective on Iraq was they had a pretty stable form of totalitarian government, of a dictatorship. There were people killed and oppressed and without freedom, certainly was nowhere near democracy under Saddam Hussein. The American-led incursion into Iraq destabilized that, and I think has resulted in many more deaths of Iraqis than would have happened had Saddam Hussein stayed in place. One of the things that you commented earlier was that there are fewer wars with democracy or maybe between democracies. I'm not sure what you were referring to there. Part of what I see in, in your mention just now of China and of Russia, once they are destabilized, that can actually lead to an increase in turmoil, deaths and war because they lack a stable leader. Yes. Well, the, the, the invasion of Iraq was the way it was carried out and the planning that went into it was a tragic mistake. It should never have happened. And it happened for the wrong reasons. 
and it happened in the wrong way. So we can agree on that. Unfortunately, it unleashed a whole series of events that uh, have resulted in millions of deaths and tens of millions of people being displaced. Unfortunately, this is one of the worst decisions, I think, in U.S. foreign policy, in the history of U.S. foreign policy. But nobody has been held responsible for this tragedy, and it's one of the things that uh, has diminished U.S. influence around the world as well. You know, I have a number of friends who would decry all of the wars that the U.S. has been part of. We know the big ones, right? We we know Vietnam and Iraq, etc. But U.S. military forces have gone into virtually every country in Central America, I think maybe except Costa Rica, repeatedly over the last seven decades. You know, our participation happened perhaps with small forces in a number of countries. I'm sure Iran was in was one of them in Iraq and, and so on. Has the U.S. as a democracy really been more peaceful than the dictatorships that you refer to? Well, it's been a more positive force, I would say. For example, the influence of the United States in setting up democracy in Japan and in Germany, in post-war Germany. I think these were very positive moves. The U.S. has had positive influence in, in a number of ways, so it's not all negative. But I think also, unfortunately, the U.S. has had made some tragic, tragically bad decisions. And uh, Iraq 2003 was one of the worst, probably the worst in the last uh, 50 years at least. I would say even worse than Vietnam, actually. The long-term tragedy of the 2003 Iraq invasion has yet to be fully known because it's going to be spilling over into other areas over the next few decades. And it's, it's still, it started a ball rolling that we haven't seen the end of. But hopefully in the future, the U.S. is going to make better decisions it's not a matter of not intervening. It's a matter of intervening in more peaceful ways and not assuming that wars are the solution. There are much better ways of conducting diplomacy and having influence around the world than sending in the troops. Sending in the troops is a terribly ineffective way, usually, of having influence. So maybe you can point out some of the non-sending in the troops alternatives that we've used to good effect, and I, I don't mean just the USA, but have been used in the world. Can you think of some good examples that maybe people haven't given sufficient attention to? Well, start with the Peace Corps. I'll vote for that. Yes, and then think of educational exchanges that the U.S. has had. Think of the cultural missions it has sent out. The United States has tremendous cultural influence around the world, and it's able to exert tremendous pressure on different parts of the world simply through its culture. If only you have somebody in the White House who can use brain power rather than military power, that's going to work much more effectively.
U.S. foreign policy has not been smart. That's the bottom line. It, it has not been its smart. It, it's been its own worst enemy. And so, Ali, there are a few other questions I want to cover before we hang up. One of them is that some of the issues you're talking about, peace internationally, could be thought of as political thinking. What's the difference between psychological thinking and political thinking? Well, all political thinking is psychological. All thinking is psychological. Cognition is central to psychology. So from my perspective, there is no distinction. Okay. But obviously, not all politicians are thinking on the same basis that you're thinking. No, but all politicians have thoughts and ideas and cognitions that can be explained psychologically. Their motives may be political for themselves, but we can look at their motives and look at their behavior and explain their behavior and their motives psychologically. Well, one of your real interests is democracy. How would a real democracy look as compared to the semi-democracies that we have now? Is there any country that gets really close to the image of a real democracy or that at least gives us a clear idea of what the pathway to a real democracy would look like? Well, a real democracy is what I call actualized democracy, borrowing from Maslow's self-actualization. And an actualized democracy is a society where every individual is participating, fully engaged in the democratic process, not like the societies we have at present where most people are distrustful and uh, apathetic towards government and are not educated to be psychological citizens in a democracy. And that's not their fault, it's the failure of our education system. As a teacher, I must say, I feel ashamed that the education system is letting us down. So there is a big difference between an actualized democracy and the kind of society we have today, such as in the United States, in Western Europe, etc. Probably the societies that come closest to an actualized democracy are smaller places, Scandinavian countries, Switzerland, where they have not just national decision-making, but also local decision-making. For example, in Switzerland, the cantons make decisions that can impact national politics. But there is a big challenge. How do we achieve that in a country of 325 million, as in the United States, or 1.3 billion, as in India? And I think the way to do that is through modern technology. We can do it. We can have much fuller participation by the masses. But of course, this is assuming that the elites want this. And of course, at the present time, the elites mostly do not want this. We can see this from the U.S. situation where much of the effort of certain elites is towards trying to prevent people voting and participating in elections rather than actually participating. Uh, there are all kinds of impediments put forward trying to prevent participation. Yeah, I can see that as being what's happening right here, right now. Another piece of the whole puzzle is this religion and spirituality piece. I've told you before, I'm Quaker, and the way I live out my spirituality in the world 
is in pursuit of peace, which is one of the reasons, of course, I contacted you. Do you see religion as particularly causing adding to war or working in the opposite direction? How does the psychology of that work? I see religion as almost like a Rorschach inkblot. You, you can see in religion whatever you want to see in religion. Some people use religion as an excuse for violence. That's not the fault of religion. That's the fault of those people. Some people look at religion and see it as something that they can use constructively. So it's not the religious system that we have to look to so much as to look in the people who are using those religions. And unfortunately, at the moment, what we have is these very aggressive forces such as Islamic State or Al-Qaeda or some other radicalized uh, Christian groups wanting to use religion to hammer at their opponents. I think this is partly because of a result of globalization trends. Some time ago, I wrote a book called How Globalization Spurs Terrorism. I believe that globalization, the way it's taking place, is leading to... Uh, what I've called catastrophic evolution, that is, sudden contact between groups without pre-adaptation and sudden collapse and threats of collapse being experienced by groups confronted by other groups that they are not familiar with. So these are very long-term trends, and I don't see us getting out of this for a while. Unfortunately, I believe that the way globalization is taking place, for several decades at least, we're going to be experiencing high levels of insecurity. I think your perspective is particularly valuable, having been born, grew up in Iran. How does your religious perspective come out of where you grew up there in England and Canada and so on? Well, I was uh, trained from a young age really to think through Sufi riddles. And uh, Sufi riddles help us to see the world from many different perspectives and to always be aware of alternative perspectives other than our own and not to see one solution to everything. So it's a sort of training for openness rather than being closed. I think religious training is not standard. There are many types of religious training, and the religious training we should be focusing on is the type of religious training that leads people to be open to other perspectives, be critical thinkers, and always begin with the assumption that they could be wrong rather than the sort of fanatical perspective that says we are right and everybody else is wrong and whoever disagrees with us is going to hell, that kind of perspective. Is there an article in Peace and Conflict, Journal of Peace Psychology, that would give us some of the deeper thoughts about that? If we went there, could we look it up in your index? And Is it already there? No, it's not there, but it is in my new book, The Psychology of Democracy. That's really what I focus on, what you need to have a democracy in terms of the kind of mind you need to have a democratic society. And uh, unfortunately, it does take time to 
change society to achieve that kind of openness. It's not going to come easily, and it's not going to come quickly. Well, I'm glad that you're helping the process along. As Ali just mentioned, folks, his book's coming out December of 2015, next month, The Psychology of Democracy, and there's plenty of other books. Follow the links on Norton Spirit Radio to look at them. I love your perspective. I love the work you're doing through the Journal of Peace Psychology. I'm glad that they've got you there as editor because I'm sure that that enriches the whole mix tremendously. And again, folks, Fatali Mogadam is a professor in the Department of Psychology at Georgetown University, where he's joined us from today for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much, Ali. Thank you so much for giving me these insights and the opportunity to uh, speak with you. Thank you very much. I've got links to Fatali Mogadam on the NordenSpiritRadio.org site and to the Journal of Peace Psychology. Special thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's program. We're going to take our leave by sharing a song with you, one that talks about our perspective on peace. It's called From a Distance, and it was written by Julie Gold and then covered by several well-known singers. The most popular version was by Bette Midler, but we'll share here the version by Nancy Griffith. From a Distance, performed by Nancy Griffith, we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. From a distance, the world looks blue and green. And the snow-capped mountains white From a distance the ocean meets the stream And the eagle takes to flight
The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.